Well, if you would turn then to Acts chapter 26, uh, Acts chapter 26, that will be our text uh, this Lord's Day as we continue uh, through the book of Acts together. I want to uh, say thank you to a number of you who came out yesterday and cleared our sidewalks and our parking lot uh, so that we could gather and worship uh, in our first service and in this service together. Thank you for doing that uh, so much. Uh, Acts 26 is where we find ourselves today. If you've been with us, you know that we've been walking through the book of Acts. And we're now at a point where Paul is going to share his testimony before King Agrippa. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Paul has gone to Jerusalem wanting to share the gospel, but his gospel proclamation keeps getting interrupted. And so there in Jerusalem, every time he would have a chance to share the gospel and to share his testimony, uh, he would be interrupted by accusations, he'd be interrupted in different trials he was in. And so he's now gone from Jerusalem, and now he is going to get this opportunity uh, to walk through his testimony to the gospel. Uh, but if you've been with us, you know a little bit about the audience that Paul is going to be preaching before. Uh, he is going to be before uh, Festus, who is a governor over that area, and then a king, King Agrippa. And if you were with us last week, you know that King Agrippa is part of the long line of Herods. Uh, the Herods were wicked kings who wanted to put an end to Christ and an end to Christians. Uh, king Agrippa, we're told, is there with Bernice, his wife, who was also his full-blooded sister. And so that tells you a little bit uh, about the corruption of Herod and this, of the Herods and of Agrippa in this court that he's before. I say all that to say, I want you to consider, before we read the text this morning, what that might be like. When we talk about giving our testimony today, we often think about that in the context of church, getting in front of a church and sharing about our faith, uh, maybe sharing our testimony in a small group or in a Sunday school class. But imagine what it would be like to stand before the most wicked and corrupt court of your day, before an ungodly king and ungodly people who had the power and authority to lock you away in prison forever, even to take your life. Imagine what you would say if you were in that context. Imagine the fears that you might have. Imagine how you might be scared to even speak up and talk about the gospel. We'll consider that as we read about a situation we don't have to imagine. Because that's very much the context Paul was in as he shared the gospel in front of King Agrippa. And so we're going to read Acts chapter 26, 1 through 32. So if you're able to, if you would stand together. And I'm going to read this, uh, this entire chapter for us this Lord's Day. Again, Paul was there in this court and he's appeared before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus. And this is what God's word tells us. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, 
as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Father, I do ask and pray that you would bless our time that we have to study this word, that you might work through the power of your Holy Spirit to bring us to conviction and repentance and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sixty years ago this month, an event took place that I've shared 
about with you before. It was 60 years ago this month that five American missionaries were killed for their faith by the very people that they were seeking to minister to. Two of their names are familiar to many of us in the circle of missions and missiology today, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. These two men, along with three of their friends, had gone to minister to the Anka Indians in Ecuador, a tribe of Indians that up to this point was completely and totally unreached by Western civilization and completely unreached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In their effort to minister to these men, they had landed on a small strip of sand, of beach, by a river there, and made attempts to contact this tribe. But what happened 60 years ago this month was their effort to reach them was misinterpreted and misunderstood, and these five missionaries were killed for their faith. Jim Elliott had written a number of things beforehand in his journals that would later be published, but perhaps the most famous thing he wrote that has been quoted by many since was this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Those words would echo through the church in the decades to come as many would take up the mantle to take the gospel to lost and unreached people groups. With the 60th year anniversary just happening recently, there were a number of interviews and things that uh, popped up in recent weeks that I read back through, and and, and one of them stood out to me. It was from Nate Saint's widow. After her husband was martyred, uh, she was interviewed, and she shared about how her husband and Jim Elliott and others had taken guns with them, had taken weapons with them for personal protection when they went into the jungle. But they had told their wives this. They told their wives that they would never use those guns against the Anka Indians. Now consider that for a moment. We live in a day and age, and particularly in this moment in our country, when many people are speaking about our rights and how we need to defend ourselves. And and I am one who believes we should have the right to defend ourselves. But imagine what it would be to go into harm's way knowing that you might encounter someone who is seeking to kill you, having the ability there to defend yourself, but deciding beforehand you wouldn't do it. Why would you come to that decision? Well, Saint's widow explained that her husband and these other men were under the conviction that this tribe was completely lost and did not know Christ. And they believed it was their mission to go and share the gospel with them. And they did not want in that effort to endanger that tribe and send them to a Christless eternity. They were willing to even lay their own lives down so that this tribe might live. What would bring that type of conviction to someone? What would bring that conviction to the Apostle Paul, who's not in an all that different situation here in Acts 26? You see, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, those other men, they could have avoided that beach in Ecuador. They could have avoided going there. There were many people along the way who told them, if you do this, you will be in danger and you might suffer. You might even lose your lives. They could have avoided that. They could have stayed home and taught in their local church and ministered and taught Sunday school classes and led VBSs and led a long and pleasant life. The Apostle Paul knew that if he went to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer. 
He knew if he went to Jerusalem, he may even lose his life. Many along the way stopped and told him, listen, if you go, you're going to suffer greatly. So along the way, Paul could have easily have stopped and settled in Ephesus or Corinth, or anywhere along Macedonia, or Trez, or any of these cities he went to, he could have stopped and settled in and ministered in the church there and lived a long and fruitful life. So why didn't he? What would lead Paul to step into a situation where he might, and he will, inevitably, be martyred for his faith? What would lead Jim Elliot and Nate Saint to go into a situation where they would be martyred and they would die for their faith. I believe that what it is that led these men to do these things was the simple truth of the gospel. I believe that what we're witnessing in Acts 26 and what took place 60 years ago is simply the fruit of the Christian life. I believe these things should not be extraordinary to us And the reason they stand out to us so much today is because we believe so many who say they are Christian, we believe they are, but the reality is they're probably not. You see, we live in a confusing time and a confusing age. When someone can simply hold up their Bible and say, here's my name, I'm a Christian, and bear absolutely no fruit of the Christian life, and we claim them to be part of the faith. I believe what makes these men stand out in history and in the Scripture is not that they were special and not that they were all that different, but what they actually were were people convicted by the gospel of Jesus Christ who then lived their life in light of the gospel. And friends, that's exactly what you and I are called to today. And I don't know if that's going to take us to a trial before an ungodly king one day. And I don't know if that's going to take us to a beach in Ecuador where we might be martyrs for the faith. But I do know it's something God has called us to do, to be authentic Christians, to stand firm in our testimony and in the gospel. And yet there is a great amount of confusion about this in the church today. And so as I walk through this passage today and walk through Acts 26, I want to point out some things that I think we are confused about. Some things I think that come to clarity when we examine Paul's testimony. And the first one is this. I placed it there in your outline. It's that Jesus calls us to repentance, not to religion. Now, let me explain what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that religion is a bad thing or a bad word. In fact, religion, when understood properly, is a good thing and it's something we're called to. But in the church today, And in our culture today, so many of us have ignored repentance and we put religion in its place thinking somehow if we're devout enough, if we try hard enough, if we follow the right set of rules, that that's going to save us. And we've completely ignored the call to repentance. You see, when we truly repent and turn from our sin, then we properly understand what religion is. Then we understand texts like James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now hear this. No one's going to go to heaven because they visit the orphans and the widows. No one's going to go to heaven because they did what James one twenty seven says. 
we will be in an eternal heaven with an eternal King Jesus because we have repented of our sin and we've placed our faith in Christ. And then the fruit of that should be religion that looks like this. And so what we see James speaking of is this is the fruit of our salvation, not what makes us saved. And I think there's a lot of confusion in the church today about this. Because so many of us have grown up in a system that taught us in some shape or form, well, if I just do this and I don't do this, then I'll be okay. If I just agree with these things, I'll be okay. If I just mentally acknowledge, oh yeah, here's my Bible, here's my name on it, this is the church I go to, I'm a member of it, that, that's what I need to do. I need to agree with those things rather than having a complete transformation that takes place in our life when we repent of our sin and we trust in Jesus as our Lord. And as a result, there are many people in the church today that are religious but there are not as many who are repentant. And the problem with religion is this. Not only does it give us a false security that we're okay, it can actually lead us to a point when we're opposing the very things that God desires in the name of God. Religion will lead us to oppose the will of God in the name of God. We see that all over our world today. And we certainly see it here in Acts chapter 26. Look at what Paul notes. He says here in verse 5 that he was religious. He says that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now that word Pharisee to you and I today might seem like a bad word. We think about how Jesus referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs who on the outside, yeah, they look fine, but on the inside they had rotten bones. That, that's not a positive description of something. So when we think about Pharisees, we think of hypocrites, we think of these uh, religious folks who didn't really practice what they preached. But in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, Pharisee wasn't a bad word. Now there were certain, there, certainly those who were living like what Jesus called out, but the Pharisees in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, they were the religious conservatives. The Pharisees would be the first ones to say, we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. Amen? Maybe. We'll see what happens. We believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They would be the ones who said, we believe God's Word is true. We believe what it says. We agree with it. We have people in our world today. We have people in our church today who say, well, we believe in what God's Word says, but the problem is, so often, we misunderstand what God's Word says. So we're standing firm on this conviction, but our conviction is rooted in a misunderstanding. And that's what the Pharisees were. See, here's what the Pharisees believed. They believed that the law in the Old Testament needed to be followed in order for a person to attain righteousness. And so they had this law. And they said, well, if I do all the things in the law, then I will be righteous. And then they kind of went over and beyond that, and they added to the law. So when the law said, well, do this, don't do this, they might add subpoint A, subpoint B, subpoint C. And so they were adding all these rules and regulations. And so... For example, they had rules about washing your hands before you ate. 
this had nothing to do with germs. They didn't even understand the biology of germs in their day. What this had to do with was declaring your cleanliness before God. And so the Pharisees, well, they would wash their hands in a very ceremonial way to stand there and say, my hands are clean before a holy God. And so when they see Jesus and his disciples not washing their hands, well, what does that say to them? Here's a group of unclean people. Here's a group of people who are not as religious as we are. What they completely misunderstood, and what many of us in the church still misunderstand today, is that the law and the scripture cannot be obeyed perfectly. Because we are not perfect people. And the more you try to obey the law, the more you will fail at it. The law, therefore, is to point us towards one who would obey it perfectly. To point us to our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But in their attempt to follow the law to the letter of the law, they completely missed the Messiah when He appeared. And that's why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, when He begins His ministry, says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He did not come and say, Listen, be more religious. Do more things that I'm telling you to do. He said, no, you need to repent. And church, what we desperately need today is we need repentance. And we need to understand the difference between religion and repentance. And there's a lot here, but I just want to point out a few things to you. And I hope that, that you and I might consider, are we religious people? Are we, relent, are we repentant people? And so consider, for example, obedience. Religion will tell you that you have the ability to obey. That you can obey and you can disobey. And so it will tell you, you can do it. And so what religion drives us towards is this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to overcome. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do everything the right way. And so, for example, you might find yourself or others saying things like, well, I'm just going to try harder. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to do this now. But let me ask you a question. How many times have you said, or has someone else said to you, I'm not going to do that anymore, only to turn around and do that very thing? How many times have you said to yourself in disgust, I'm never ever going to do that again. And within days, you're doing that very thing again. Why is that? It's because we bought into this religious system that in some way, shape, or form has told us if we just vow and we try hard enough, we can obey and we can do it. But the Gospel comes and tells us, friends, you can't do it. You're going to fail. Yeah, you have the ability to obey to an extent. If the sign says 55 miles an hour, you have the ability to drive 55 miles an hour. But what do you do? Well, I think it's five over is okay. Well, if it's five, maybe eight, you know. If I just stay under not going ten over, well, they just pass me going like 15 over. <laughs> and what do we do? We see the law, and then we try to reinterpret the law, or bend the law, or adjust the law, in an attempt to do what? To not obey the law. 
So even when we have the ability to obey, do we? See, repentance is a whole different thing. Repentance helps us to understand that on our best day, we are unable to perfectly obey. And even when we can't obey, we still choose to disobey because we've got a heart problem. We've got a heart issue. We're depraved and we're lost. What repentance helps us to see is that we're just like Adam and Eve in that garden. When given everything they could ever want, not needing or wanting for anything, what did they choose? The very thing that God said, do not eat. That's what they went for. And in our heart, that's what we do. No one teaches us to say no. No one teaches us to disobey. We come by that natural, don't we? Because we have a depraved heart. And when we understand repentance, we understand that the only thing that will fix us is not us trying to fix ourselves, but a holy God doing a work in us. And the Scripture tells us that happens when we repent. When we are walking towards our sin, and rather than saying, I don't like it, I don't want it, I'm not going to do it anymore, and we kind of turn our back to it, and then we start looking at it again, and then we start turning to it again, and then we get close, oh, but I don't want it, and we just go in this back and forth struggle. Repentance is saying, God, I don't want this, I want you. And I want you to change my heart so that I don't want this anymore. And when we desire it, when we're tempted to go back to it, continuing to go before God, not saying, I'm able to change myself, but praying that God will bring a change in our life. Repentance then leads us to be humble and not proud, where religion leads us to be proud and not humble. And we see this in Paul, who was very proud of his heritage, who was very proud as a Pharisee, but who realized very quickly when the Lord appeared to him that his religion could not save him. Which brings us to the second point there in your outline. Jesus does not simply call us from something, he calls us to something. Again, this is an area that's become very confusing in the gospel because this is what we typically think of when we think of the gospel. When we think of conversion, when we think of getting saved or becoming a Christian, we think of that in terms of, well, that's when I stopped doing such and such. Well, once I became a Christian, well, I stopped doing this. And so we talk to people about becoming a Christian in those terms. Well, they, if I respond to this, if I become a Christian, am I going to have to stop doing such and such? And we think of salvation only in the terms of what I need to give up, not what I need to run towards. We think of it as what do I need to leave behind, not what do I need to move forward in in my life. And what Paul here shares is a testimony filled with what God was calling him to while mentioning something he was calling him from. Look at verse 14. This might be an unfamiliar phrase to you, I imagine for most of us. So Paul says that when Christ appeared to him, the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I, I imagine that most of us, when we got to church today, and we were shaking hands there at the beginning, and we were talking about our week or our weekend or saying hey to folks. I'm just guessing. Nobody in here had a conversation like, hey, how was your week? Well, you know, I was kicking against the goads. Okay. Anybody? 
use that term, that phrase. Most of us probably don't have any idea what Paul was saying here. And so it's very helpful to do a little study and find this out. I'll give you a little study tip. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have no Greek to figure this stuff out. It's a great tool to have just a good study Bible. Somebody asked me last Lord's Day about a good study Bible. I use an ESV study Bible. There's lots of great study Bibles out there. And oftentimes the study Bible will just have little explanations at the bottom there. Well, the ESV study Bible tells us this about this phrase. To kick against the goads is a proverbial statement the Romans probably knew, meaning that one cannot ultimately resist God's will. Goads were sharp sticks used to prod oxen. And if the oxen kicked in resistance, the drivers would keep them in line by using the goads more severely. And so what Paul's saying here is that Jesus said to him, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Meaning what? Meaning that the Lord, Jesus, was the master. And that Paul was resisting his will. And so Jesus here is saying, Paul, your resistance is futile. Why are you pushing back against me? Why don't you obey me? Friends, there are many of us here today who are kicking against the goads. Who know exactly what it is God has called us to do and not to do. And we are resisting that. And that resistance is as foolish as the animal kicking against their master. And their master is just going to poke that goad harder to get that animal to do what they're supposed to be doing. Except our God is gracious. And our God is loving. He loves us enough not to allow us in our foolishness to just keep on running away. And at the same time, graciously bringing us in line. And one of the ways he does that is by opportunities like this. Being under the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's a way that God just pokes at us and says, would you listen? Would you listen? Would you do what I'm calling you to do? And realize you can't do it in your own strength. Would you repent and trust in me? And then, that, then as you do that, would you realize what he's calling you to? In Paul's testimony, he doesn't focus a lot on what God was calling him from. He says a lot more about what God was calling him to. And notice what that was. He tells us very clearly here that God was calling him to be a servant and a witness. And so these aren't two separate calls. It's not that Paul's saying, well, here's how I became a Christian, and here's how I became a minister. Here was my call to salvation. Here was my call to ministry. There's just one call here. And Jesus said to Paul, stop kicking against the goad. Stop resisting me. And then notice what he tells him to do. Paul, be a servant and be a witness. Tells Paul in verse 18 as he's to go to lost people and to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. He tells them that he's to go to people who need to hear the gospel so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and that they might have a place among those who are sanctified in the faith. Friends, this wasn't just a special call for Paul and it wasn't just a special call for Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. I believe this is the call for every Christian today. And so your call to the gospel isn't just a call to repent and turn from sin. Your call to the gospel is then to be a witness to a lost and dying world. Now think about it this way. If the call to the gospel was to simply save you and save me, then why doesn't God, at the moment that we're saved, 
just snatch us up to heaven. I mean, I can tell you, things would be a lot easier that way, wouldn't they? I mean, imagine as a Christian never suffering, never worrying, never going through all the hardships we go through, never struggling again with sin. Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't at the moment of our salvation, God just snatch us up in that moment? I mean, imagine the altar calls, you know, whoo, right through the wet spot in the ceiling. But He doesn't do that, does He? So why is that? I don't think it's because God is so concerned about us accomplishing all our life goals. I don't think that it's because God knows that when we were such and such age, we said, well, I can't wait till I do this and do this and do this. And God's like, okay, well, make sure you get to do all them things there. I think we see the reason rooted in Paul's testimony is because we live in a lost and dying world. And we live among billions of people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we live among billions of other people who have heard it and think they're okay because their name's on a Bible. But they're completely lost because they don't know the gospel. And God has left us here among these people with a ministry, a call to share the gospel to them. To be a witness to them. We're not just called from something, from sin. We're called to something to be a witness. And it's not that we have to do the work. It's that we are a part of the work that God is doing. And friends, when you step out and you're a part of that work, it's an amazing thing to see how God works. He truly does work in mysterious ways. And He uses the weak and the humble of our world to shame the wise. And if you will submit to His will and say, Lord, use me however you want, just wait and see how He does that. Because He does it in amazing ways. Every time we have a, a Sunday like this where there's snow and, of course, their church is not open today and there's, there's you know, folks have a hard time getting out. If there was a UK game, they wouldn't have a hard time, but it's church, they do have a hard time. Another sermon, but... I always think about a story I read years ago, uh, January 1850. It's a 15-year-old named Charles, and Charles was feeling convicted. Uh, he had grown up in church, he had been raised in church, but on that particular Sunday, he, he just felt conviction that he really needed to be in church that day. And so Charles set out uh, by foot, roads weren't scraped because there weren't roads, uh, in the middle of a snowstorm to walk to church. The snowstorm was so intense that he could barely see the hand in front of him. And so he had to turn at a building he could feel and walk down and immediately just went into the closest chapel he could find. It wasn't his normal church. It was a primitive Methodist church that he went into. When Charles went into that church, he found that there weren't many people that day. And in fact, the preacher hadn't even showed up that day. And so I assumed that they sat around and looked at each other for a while and, and one of the lay people in the church got up and started preaching. Now just imagine that for a second. You come today, it's a snowy day. I'm not here. Pastor Nick's not here. Pastor Matt's not here. And everybody's looking around. Well, who's going to preach? Anybody ready? <laughs> well, I'm not sure how ready the guy was that preached that day. But Charles would later write 
that a man got up and started preaching, and he would actually write about what a miserable preacher he was. <laughs> he would write that he really didn't even know how to pronounce the words he was saying. And so he just kept repeating over and over again the verse that he was preaching on. The verse was this, Isaiah forty-five twenty-two: Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Now that young man, Charles, was Charles Spurgeon. Some of you know that name. Charles Spurgeon would go on to be a great preacher. He would be used by God to win thousands of people to faith in Christ. He would go on to write a number of books. He would go on to train a number of pastors. In fact, I stand here before you today receiving my training in part from books that Charles Spurgeon wrote a hundred years ago. This is what he wrote about his conversion that took place that day. He said he had not much to say, speaking of this miserable preacher. Thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, That young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Look, look, young man, look now. Now imagine that for a second. You wander into a church that you've never been to before. A guy gets up to preach who's probably never preached before. And then during the sermon decides to point at you and start yelling at you. That might be a little different. You might not stay. You might be offended. You might be distracted. But Charles Spurgeon that day would write this. Then I had this vision. Not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. As the snow fell on my road home from that little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked to me and told me of the pardon I had found, for I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. Nobody knows the name of that man who preached to Charles Spurgeon. I don't know that he ever preached another sermon. But that day, by faith, he was a witness of the gospel. And in witnessing of that gospel, even miserably when he couldn't pronounce the words right, God brought conviction in the life of a 15-year-old who a year later would become a pastor himself and who would go on to teach and train many and to preach and see many saved for the gospel. One of the books that Charles Spurgeon would go on to write was called The Soul Winner. And he would talk in that book about the need for us to share the gospel with others and to be a part of seeing God win people to faith in Christ. And he would talk about the tragedy in the church for so many who had never seen somebody come to faith in Christ. He said this, Somehow or another we must and will Bring souls to Jesus Christ. As Rachel cried, give me children or I die. So many none of you should be content to be barren in the household of God. Cry and sigh until you have snatched some brand from the burning and have brought at least one to Jesus Christ that so you also may have saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. Spurgeon said for us in the church today who've never been a part Never been a part 
of witnessing and telling another about the Gospel and seeing God save them, we should be like Rachel crying out over her barrenness because we've never seen a spiritual child born. Church, do you cry out like that? Do you feel that kind of burden and that kind of loss in your life having never seen somebody come to faith in Jesus? That's what Spurgeon taught about. And that's what we're reminded of when we see Paul's testimony here is that we're called to be a witness. And here's the thing. You don't have to be very good at it. (laughs) You don't even have to pronounce the words right. You just need to be able to open up your Bible and through the power of the Holy Spirit share with somebody about how you came to faith in Christ. You know Paul, when he shares his testimony, if you read this out loud, as I did this morning, that section when he actually shares his testimony, takes about three minutes. You don't need to spend four hours sharing the gospel with somebody. You just need to simply help them understand how God saved you and how He can save them. And so the question is, will you do that? And that's the last thing there in your outline. Point three. How will you respond to the call of the Lord? Friends, every scripture calls us to a response. Here in this scripture, we actually see three different responses. We see the Apostle Paul, most notably, verse 19 there. He hears the gospel. The Lord says, Paul, stop kicking against the goads. Paul, be a witness. So what does Paul do? Paul obeys. That's one option. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul obeyed and became a witness of faith in Jesus Christ. That's not the only response. We also see the response here of Festus, the governor. Notice there in verse 24 and 25 as we read in chapter 26. As he was saying these things, so so Paul is in the middle of preaching. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Now think about that for a moment. I, I have had some distractions in preaching before. I've had some interruptions. I've had people get up abruptly and walk out. Had a guy at last church we were at actually get up abruptly and start walking towards me, and people took him out. I've had now a ceiling start dripping before me, wondering if that light fixture might just fall at any moment. I had, unbeknownst to most of you, a large crack in the ceiling back there that was for several weeks, and I wondered if that was going to fall on y'all, but we fixed that. That was a few years ago. I've been distracted by a lot of things, but I've never had somebody stand up in the middle of a sermon and say, Brother Richard, you are crazy. Now, I'm not asking for anybody to do that today. Imagine what that would be like for Paul. Imagine what that was like for Festus. To be so certain that Paul was preaching foolishness that he could interrupt him and call it that. I've never had that happen during a sermon. But I've had a lot of people when I shared the Gospel with them say to me, that's crazy. I've had a lot of people when I said, the reason I'm doing this and not doing this is because of what God's Word. I've had a lot of people say to me in so many words, well, that's just foolish. Have you had that before? When you really live according to what God's Word says and the world around us, people look and go, why would you do that? And why wouldn't you do this? That's just crazy. The Scripture says that a lot of people will respond to the Gospel that way. Paul wrote to the Corinthians this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, remember that. The power is not in what you say or what I say. And when we share the gospel, there will be people who would say, that is crazy. That is foolishness. But there will be others who will find it a sweet aroma. And they will be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God is already doing a work in their life. And you're just along for the ride. Because the power's not in me and you. The power's in the gospel. But some will respond by saying that's crazy. And then last, King Agrippa. We see his response in verse 28 where he says to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And now there's various interpretations of this. Some believe that Agrippa is saying, Paul, you really haven't said much yet. Are you actually expecting me to respond based on the little you've said? Uh, Others believe that Agrippa is saying, Paul, do you expect me now to behave like a Christian? To be religious? But a third interpretation is one I lean towards. Where Agrippa is actually saying to Paul, Paul, in such a short time, you've almost persuaded me. Almost, but not quite. You think about how many people in our culture today say, well, yeah, I'm close, but I'm not quite ready. I hear what you're saying, and I know what I need to do, but I'm, I'm not really ready to give this up or stop doing this. But, but maybe one day. Almost, but not quite. Spurgeon wrote this. Almost persuaded to be a Christian is like the man who was almost pardoned but was hanged. Like the man who almost was rescued but died in the fire. A man that is almost saved is lost. Friends, the call from Scripture for you today is to repent and be saved. Not tomorrow and not next week. If you have heard the gospel, maybe some of you have heard it all your life, but you have held it at bay. Maybe there are things in your life you know you need to repent of and turn from, and you say, tomorrow, 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 but there will be a day when there is no tomorrow. And the call from the Scripture is today. Respond. But it's not just a call for lost people who've never repented. Christians, there's a clear call for us today. There's a call for us to be witnesses of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And I'll be honest with you. We are failing miserably at this call. The the, the church in our nation is shutting its doors much quicker than it's opening new ones. The churches that are growing are only growing because 40 churches around them are suffering and dying and closing their doors. By and large, we're not moving forward. We're moving backward. And I think one of the fundamental reasons is because we focused so much on religion and on what you should do and not do that we've forgotten to just be repentant and be witnesses to a lost and dying world. And the call for us is to be a witness, and to stop making excuses for why we're not. I think many of us in recent months and years have considered the scenario that we've seen happen to so many. 
Now, I've had conversations with people about this. If, if the gun was to your head, if the gun was to my head, would we recant and denounce our faith? Or will we stand firm in it? And I've heard countless Christians say to me, if the gun's put to my head, I will remain faithful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gun's put to my head and I'm told, you either deny Christ and, and live, or you confess Christ and die. I've had people say to me, and I've thought this myself, I would confess Christ. So why won't we confess Him when the gun's not to our head? I don't know that the gun's going to be put to our head, but we're going to have to decide every day if we're willing to die to ourselves to confess Christ. If we're willing to risk relationships. If we're willing to risk our standing before others. If we're willing to risk our jobs and our careers. It's one thing to say, hypothetically, I'd give my life for the Gospel. It's another thing here and now to die to ourselves for the sake of the Gospel. And to share it right here where we are. If we won't start a conversation across a lunchroom table with someone who's not holding a gun to our head to talk to them about our faith in Jesus, what makes us think we would be so bold when that day came? And I don't know if that day will come. But I know what day is here. We live in a day of great confusion and desperate need. And we have been called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. God has not pulled you up to heaven at the moment of conversion. He has left us here. And I don't know how much longer that we might be witnesses for the sake of the gospel. There are many excuses and reasons for us not to be. We, we suffer. Things in life happen that are, that are hard. And we say, I just, I just can't do that right now. Well, I would call your attention to the story I started with and share with you this example from history. The families of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and those three others had every reason to go home and to just settle in and find safety and security their husbands had given their lives for the gospel. No one would have thought ill of them if they said, we're just done with this. But several years after their death, the widow of Jim Elliot, Elizabeth, and the sister of Nate St. Rachel returned to Ecuador as missionaries. And friends, they would actually go and live among the people in the very tribe, the very tribe of the men who killed their loved ones. And as they lived there with him, Elizabeth Elliot, with her young daughter, whose father had been brutally murdered by these same people, they would share the gospel and God would do a miraculous work of His grace in bringing that entire tribe to faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, then He would send members of that tribe out risking their lives to go to neighboring warring tribes to share the gospel with them. And He would do a work throughout Ecuador through the faith of these women who would return to this dangerous place. And in a further, a further testimony of His grace, God would do this. About a decade after their father was brutally killed, two innate saints' children would come to faith in Christ through the testimony of the very men who killed their father. And they would go to the very place their father was killed at that river and they would be baptized in that water by the very men who had killed their father. 
as a testimony to the grace of Jesus Christ. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, do you realize that that one day we will stand before the throne of a holy God and we will be standing beside people from this tribe, Wadana Indians, from these Anka Indians from Ecuador, who will not be stained with the blood of those they kill, but who will be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they will stand hand in hand with the very men they murdered, singing before the throne of God, praises to Him forever. That's the power of the gospel. The call for us is, one, will we be standing with them? Will we respond in faith? And two, who else will be there with us? Will we step out in faith and share the power of the gospel with those around us? Or will we continue to make excuses? Because when we're there, there's no more opportunity to be a witness for Christ. That opportunity is now. The question is, will we take it? If you would, pray with me. Father God, I, I confess I struggle with this. And Father, I, I, have, I have failed so often to be a witness. So many opportunities, Father. Even now, I think of people in relationships where I just was, I was scared and I was fearful. And Lord, then I'm, I'm reminded of one who wasn't fearful. I have a young man who knocked on my door my freshman year of college and boldly told me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, you sent him there and you used him and you brought me to faith through that testimony. And I thank you for that, Lord. My eternity has changed because of that. And Lord, I, I trust that you desire to use each of us in that same way. And so, Father, I pray we would be faithful to that call to be witnesses. I pray, God, that, that you would use us. And, and maybe, Lord, we will be like that, that nameless layperson who, who just miserably preached the gospel, but by just opening up the Word, you use that to bring Charles Spurgeon to faith. And Lord, you can use us in the same way. Maybe, Lord, there's someone here that you want to use as you use Spurgeon to preach the gospel to hundreds, if not thousands. But Lord, for that to happen, we're going to have to set some things aside. Our popularity, our prestige, our positions. Lord, help us to die to those things for the sake of the gospel. And help us to live, not in light of this temporary world, but in light of eternity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.